Green Sense Show is sponsored by CEA Technology, providing a sustainable modular indoor growing system. Visit CEATECHN.com to learn more. I'm Robert Colangelo, and this is Green Sense, where we bring you eco-innovations that are changing your world. Securing venture capital is an entrepreneur's dream until it turns into a nightmare. A large capital infusion can be a great way to jumpstart a new business. It's the grease that lubricates all the gears in a startup, providing capital to fuel growth, hire talent, develop products, and expand operations. Getting there can be a nightmare. Securing funding is a time-consuming, tedious process that can be a big risk as it distracts founders from building their core business and takes a long time to find the right investor and negotiate a reasonable term sheet. Then comes the hard part. Once the capital investment is secured, founders must weave through the many strings attached, like dilution of owner equity and reduced control and decision-making. The founders then find themselves on a fast track to grow the company and generate a return for the new investors. Silicon Valley set the bar for VC investing. Is the Silicon Valley model dead? Do we need a new investment model to attract entrepreneurs to communities to make them more sustainable, healthy, and vibrant? And can investors and founder interests be better aligned to reward risk? Here to tell us more is John McDonald. Managing Entrepreneur at Next Studios with more than 25 years of experience as an entrepreneur. He founded ClearObject, the fastest growing technology company in Indiana for five years. He also served as CEO of Chicago-based startups CloudOne and worked at IBM where he led technical sales for their software development tools product line. John, I'm very happy to welcome you to the GreenSense Show. Robert, my great pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. Well, you have such a distinguished background. Reading your bio would be an injustice. It might even be boring to some of our listeners. Boring. So boring. with limited time, mm -hmm. why'd you found studios and what need does it fill? Yeah. Well, after spending a lot of time in a corporate American building, a startup company, I, I really wanted to be involved in a lot of different startup companies. I knew I could go back to corporate America. I could start another one, but I wanted to be what I like to call a force multiplier. So I looked into this venture studio model, which seemed to me to be the fastest way to be able to get involved in a lot of different startups all at once. And so that's the fundamental reason for putting it together initially, or at least being interested in it. Uh, and you're the right person. You have quite a background there. So explain the traditional venture capital model and how it works. Well, that sort of uh, that understanding came of researching this business model and trying to figure it out. A traditional venture model, and there are a lot of them that are like this, they raise a big pile of money from investors, and uh, then they'll tend to spawn companies around ideas that they generate themselves, or if they like your idea, they want to buy it from you for like 80 or 90%, which I thought was a little curious, you know, like who, who would come up with an idea and then sell it right away and become an employee of your own idea? right out of the gate. And so I started interviewing some of the people that did that deal. And what I realized very quickly was that the answer that most of them gave was that they didn't feel that they had what it took to be a successful entrepreneur, which is a real curiosity to me because what it takes to be a successful entrepreneur is way less than what most people think it actually is. But that kind of struck me as a little creepy. And frankly, if you stretch it a little bit, maybe a little predatory. 
right? Let's prey on people that don't have the self-confidence and buy their ideas from them and make money from them. I didn't, didn't really want to do that. So we uh, looked around for a different type of model that would allow us to still work with startup companies, but not be predatory and struck on a, uh, a model called a benefits corporation or a B Corp, which you may have heard of before or talked about before, but basically simply stated, you put a public benefit for the existence of your company in your corporate charter with the state. Ours is advancing entrepreneurship. And then you are compelled to use some of the resources that you have in service of that public benefit. So the way our studio works is we do what could best be called innovation consulting for established corporations, businesses, communities, organizations. Uh, and that can range anywhere from cultural issues to corporate governance issues to any number of things. And they pay, uh, thank you very much. But then we use some of those resources in service of the public benefit and offer up programs and funding models for startup entrepreneurs at no charge to them. Uh, that's our public benefit. And uh, sort of a Robin Hood model, if you will, although the uh, Although the corporations that hire us love it because not only do they get their problems solved, they also get this sort of double bounce in the community for helping new startup companies get started. So that's how the studio works. And that's kind of why we did it that way. Did you originate this or did you see uh, others uh, that set a precedent and uh, modified that? Well, we can't find anybody else doing it this way, which is either really, really awesome or really terrifying. <laughs> That's the first thing investors <laughs> ask. Right. Right. Who are your right. competitors? <laughs> right. Well, I, I can tell you our competitors are the traditional way of doing this or not doing anything at all with your idea, which are both maybe not so great. But uh, yeah, it's it's probably a little of both. It's probably both terrifying and really cool at the same time. But yeah, we're, well, we're we'll dig here. into the model a little more. Let's stick with venture capital. Um, where does venture capital work best and where does it fail? Well, I mean, I would tell you that uh, the purpose of venture capital historically is a growth hormone. Uh, and what I mean by that is that technology, and it doesn't have to be like an app or a new, you know, sort of widget. It can be a new process or a new method too. It's something tech, techie. Uh, has a is a very interesting business because everything that you do somewhere between tomorrow and the next year or two becomes totally obsolete. And so if you waited for the normal business cycles, like if you were going to open a pizza place or something like that to gather enough capital to grow your company, you would sub-optimize the value of the technology in the market before it became obsolete. So the purpose of venture capital is a growth hormone. It's to grow the company faster than it normally would so you can exploit the value of the technology before it becomes obsolete. That's why there's such a tight linkage between venture capital and the technology business. And I would also argue why you see companies like Apple and Google and, and others here in America. It's not because we're smarter than other parts of the world. It's because we have the most uh, robust venture capital system. And those uh, venture capitalists are the ones that fuel the growth of those technologies so that they can exploit that in the marketplace. And that's why you could also argue that it's been the major growth engine for the American economy since probably the late 1960s when the venture capital industry was born and, and why we are renowned throughout the world for our technological prowess, not so much again because we're smarter, but because we got a lot of venture capital behind it. So it works really well when you get a new technology and you need to make it grow fast so that you can exploit it. And where now, does it fail? Yeah, to the other part of your question. Uh, if you take a look at statistically, <laughs> who gets the venture capital, right? Uh, 
less than 2% goes to black founders, less than 1% to Latino founders, less than 5% to women founders, less than 2% to rural founders. Like if you're a black woman in rural America, I don't I can't even do that math. It's like microscopic, your chances of actually getting it, right? So, so why is that, right? Is it because they're, you know, misogynistic or racist? I suppose some of them might be, but I think it's really that they're risk averse. See, the, uh, the venture studio model, venture capital model, you have to get a big return for the per people that invest in your fund. They're called limited partners. And, and, and they have a term for this. They call it doubles and triples and home runs. That means twice, 3x and 4x the amount of money you put in, right? So it's a very high bar. And so as a result, these fund managers, they have to be very picky and choosy. Uh, despite the name venture capital, they're actually not very venturous. So they tend to go back to the same people that have delivered for them over and over again, which tend to be people that are coming from Silicon Valley and the suburbs and of a certain skin color and a certain gender. And so that's why it happens. And so the traditional venture model um, you know, is pretty restricted, frankly, to a fairly small group of people, which is a minority of the American population, which means that we're leaving a ton of people on the sideline, especially when you get outside of Silicon Valley. And that's where there's probably opportunity for maybe a different type of model. Well, that was a nice uh, explanation. And let's talk a little bit about Silicon Valley. Uh, that model of entrepreneurship revolves around high technology. It's usually uh, technologies that are supposed to be disruptive innovations, mostly SaaS, software as a service type startup companies. Um, but it's not just the capital. Silicon Valley's a place. It's an ecosystem. In addition to the capital, it has all the support services needed to get a startup to that growth phase you talked about. Accelerators, mentors, universities, professional service providers. So in your opinion, how do you create centers of investment that also have that support ecosystem in these rural areas or yeah. these, these non-big cities? So you just, uh, in your question there, uh, outlined exactly what it takes to be able to build a successful startup, at least from a resource perspective. When you were in elementary school, you learned about the fire triangle. Remember that? You have to have fuel and heat and oxygen in order to have a fire. And the way you put out a fire is to take away one of those things. Well, it also works the same way with startup companies. You need three things. You need capital, uh, if you will, oxygen, talent if you will, fuel, and place, uh, if you will, heat. And the absence of any of those things, no fire, also the absence of any of those things, no company. And by the way, it's in that order. You raise capital in order to do what with it? Hire people, either directly or through service providers, and then you need a place for them to work, right? It's in that sort of that order. But I would also point out that even if you have heat and fuel and oxygen, you still don't have a fire, right? It takes an ignition source. And metaphorically, that ignition source in startups is the entrepreneur. It's the job of the entrepreneur to arrange the capital and the talent and the place, if you will, and then light the fire to be the spark of intentionality. That's what it takes to be a successful entrepreneur, to do something about the idea right now. So it's no surprise that when you see a lot of startup companies, what you also see is a lot of availability of this raw material, capital, talent in place, again, in that order. So you see a centering of the venture capital business in America in Silicon Valley, 
Then you also see a lot of talent from the companies that have been in Silicon Valley for many decades. And then you see a lot of places around Silicon Valley where those people congregate and hang out in co-working spaces and the like. So the recipe for creating a similar scenario in other communities is not at all different. What you have to do is you have to have ideas, good news, everybody's got them, they're free. But you have to have capital, talent, and place, starting with capital. You have to have the available of the capital. Then you need to have people with skills that are available for hire, and then you need a place for them to work. Now, working in uh, the to the benefit of more rural parts of America, uh, certainly more rural than Silicon Valley, um, the last two things, talent and place, have become largely virtual, largely virtual. I can now work from anywhere. I can get hired by any company pretty much, no matter where I live. And that means my place is kind of online now, Zoom calls and other sorts of virtual ways to keep connected. So the traditional constraints of availability of talent and the availability of place have greatly diminished, partially because of the pandemic. So if it's true that I can get talent and I can get place now largely virtual, that leaves only one thing that I need to source, and that's capital. And so you have to have the availability of capital for entrepreneurs. That's what attracts them. And so when we go into a community and advise them on how they can begin to start to create a more entrepreneurial community, the first conversation is always about how do we start to build a capital base? That's the key in the lock that enables the entrepreneurs to do their thing and attracts the talent and attracts the place to those ideas. Silicon Valley is not replicated across the world. You know, it's a very unique place. And so we mentioned the elements that make it up, but when people try to replicate it, you don't get it. You get maybe Silicon Alley in New York, where you have Silicon Corridor in Boston, but they're not Silicon Valley. Um, so, you know, how, how do you replicate that model? And, and do we have to, or do we have to look at creating new models for different places? Oh, I think it's very much that. Uh, I don't want to be the silicon anything. <laughs> right, right, right. I think <laughs> what we want to be, what we want to be is who we are and play into the strengths of who we are. Um, if you look at here in the Midwest, for instance, um, Chicago and Midwest, there's no lack of talent, that's for sure. And there's certainly no lack of ideas. And I don't know, people might argue with it. I think it's a pretty cool place to live. I kind of like it around here. So we're in no deficit for some of these things that are necessary. One of the things we are at a deficit in, however, is capital, arguably. And so it keeps coming back to that place. Now, what I find to be curious about this is there's no lack of wealth across America, okay? So particularly in the Midwest, communities across the Midwest have tons of wealth. It's just not necessarily being organized and leveraged in the service of startup founders. And so one of the things that we pioneered here in our hometown um, and are working, frankly, with other communities on helping them figure out is an in your hometown is Indianapolis. Indianapolis, yeah, <laughs> an intersection between philanthropy and and entrepreneurship, and it's a it's a type of venture fund called an impact fund. 
And let me explain briefly how that works. Um, an impact fund is a venture fund in every way. It makes equity investments, aka buy stock in companies. Um, there's an expectation of a return uh, for that investment. Uh, due diligence is performed. In other words, studying the companies that you're investing in to make sure they're going to invest all the same. But the difference is, is that the money in an impact fund has been donated to the fund versus sourced through traditional investors. And so the significance of that is multifold. First one is because it's a real investment, it creates a, uh, a discipline in the founders that you don't get from grants or free money or gifts. But um, importantly, because the money is donated to the fund, it doesn't have that high risk profile that's associated with the traditional venture fund, that big return that you have to get, because the money doesn't go back to the original donor, even if, even if they wanted to. So what it does is it frees you to invest in earlier stages of the system than you might normally in founders that are maybe the first time founders, or the people that are not necessarily the same profile as traditional investable people. But perhaps even more importantly, if there is a return from that investment and there's an expectation of that, the returns don't go back to the original donor either. They stay in the fund to be reinvested over and over again. That's called evergreen in the venture fund business. So you get future bounces and a, an opportunity to reinvest and reinvest and reinvest. And so we've been talking to community foundations, to private foundations, to banks, to other sorts of individuals that have philanthropic assets about, instead of just making grants and donations, which are kind of a one-way street, you hope for the best. What if instead you donate your money to a venture capital fund locally in your community that will use it to invest in the creation of new startup companies right here in this community and grow our economy and have an impact in our community and get that money moving to the benefit of our local community so this impact fund idea is growing like a wildfire across america and because it's a mechanism among others for unlocking some of the vast wealth that exists across the country and turning it into investable assets primarily in underserved founder communities Impact investing has been around for a while. A number of uh, large organizations like MacArthur take a portion of their principal and rather than giving it out as grants, make investments that, that look for low rates of return. How, how is what you're talking about different from what's out there already? It's in the definition of the word investment. Oftentimes when uh, philanthropic organizations, corporate um, corporate foundations, others use the word investing historically, it's sort of almost a metaphor for a gift. There's not a return really that's expected, uh, or if there is, it's sort of low odds, right? Um, so it's not really an investment, right? It's more like I'm gonna give this money and I'm gonna call it an investment in the hopes that somehow it will last and make an impact, right? The difference here though, is that this is an actual investment. A classically defined actual investment where the fund is buying stock in the company, in the startup company. That's an investment. But it's doing so in a way that uses uh, philanthropically sourced money in order to have an impact in the local community. So I would argue that uh, an, an impact fund is probably the most truest form of an impact investment because it's truly an investment and it's truly about the impact in the local community. 
Well, to make a, a strong, healthy, vibrant, sustainable America, we must have vibrant cities. Uh, they're, they're the core building block that makes America great. 86% of Americans live in large metropolitan areas and talent, capital, and the startup ecosystems readily available in those large areas. But then out of the 19,502 incorporated places, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, that are registered in the United States as of July 2019, 16,000 plus had a population under 10,000. Only 10 cities had a population of 1 million or more. So how do we attract investment and talent to these smaller, less populated cities that make up much of America, yet much of the population lives in the big cities? Uh, can your model be replicated in these places or does it, can it just be virtual? You know, we believe so. And we've had a series of different communities that have also come to that appreciation understanding that by unlocking the wealth in their own community and using it as a way to provide capital for these startup entrepreneurs, it is a new, um, if you will, way to solve an old problem, which is how do you do economic development and sustainable growth here in my local community? Um, we wrote a white paper recently here at Next Studios. It's called The Case for Community Impact and Economic Development Through Entrepreneurship. It sort of speaks into the convergence of these three ideas, uh, philanthropic impact, economic development, and entrepreneurship, which have largely historically been separate things, but are increasingly becoming the same thing, at least in the minds of a lot of leaders in those communities. See, economic development historically, uh, without trying to offend economic developers who might be listening, has largely been uh, what they like to call smokestack chasing. I'm going to dangle tax credits in front of you so that you'll move your screw factory from, you know, Illinois to Indiana or something like that. Well, what did you win when you do that? Well, you want a screw factory that is now somewhat competitive with all the other screw factories that we already have that is also somewhat subsidized by the government making all the other screw factories a little less competitive, right? So it's not even a zero-sum game, it's a negative-sum game. But it's been the practice of most economic development organizations to do some version of what I just said, either trying to steal some plan or some operation from some foreign land or some state next to them or get some company to move into the tech park that they built by the freeway or some sort of model like that. But the reality is if that ever worked, it sure doesn't work that much anymore. In reality, the only way for you to truly grow an economy is to grow your economy, right? You have to invest in the people that are there and help them start businesses and create jobs and grow your economy. That's the only way it's ever really worked. And so if we can unlock the capital that we have in our community, that becomes an attractor to the people who might want to use that capital to build up a, a thing around an idea and then guess what? They'll stay here in this place and they'll never leave because they've got a, an awesome business that they want to continue to sustain and grow. So again, it goes back to capital, but also it goes back to the attitude of local civic leaders. And do they see economic development as growing your own? Do they see this convergence between entrepreneurship and economic development and between entrepreneurship and economic development and community impact and drawing in philanthropic sources into the same fight. If you've got leaders that look at the world through that way, I'm going to show you a community that 5, 10, 15 years down the road is going to continue to survive and thrive in the fourth economy. 
But if you got leaders that are sort of in their camps and don't talk to each other and they're not converging around solving the local problem and are waiting for some ship from outer space to fly in and land in the tech part by the freeway, I'm going to show you a community that's going to be in real trouble in 5, 10, 15 years, if not already. And so that's really the challenge for folks that are in smaller communities is, are you, are you showing up to the gunfight with a chapstick or are you showing up together with all of the people in the community working together with every asset that we have to make sure that we can stick the landing and grow and be relevant in the fourth economy? Well, it's funny. Uh, the capital markets are all about investing in disruptive technologies, but that's an industry that needs to be disrupted. <laughs> it's stayed, it's, uh, it's insular, yeah. and, and it, it hasn't changed for a long time. Yeah. So I really appreciate you being on the show, John. You've got some really uh, progressive ideas out there that I think can bring capital to an underserved market, both uh, uh, gender and, and ethic, ethnically, as well as uh, just uh, non-SaaS uh, type technologies. Uh, in closing, do you have any short words of wisdoms for our listeners? <laughs> well, I'll go back to something I said at the very beginning. Um, the things that people think that make a successful entrepreneur are much less than they actually are. It's not the color of your skin or how much you know or where you went to school or how much money you have or where you grew up or who your parents were. It's, it's none of the above. It's actually just two things. It's intentionality. I want to act on that idea right now, not tomorrow, not next week, now, intentionality, and coachability. Do you have ears? Do you want the input? Do you want to learn how to do this? Do you want to surround yourself with people that can give you advice and coaching and, and can help you avoid some of the mistakes? I'm here to tell you that's it. It's intentionality and coachability, and there's not a third thing. And so if you think that you can't be an entrepreneur, you're wrong. <laughs> and I and we desperately need you to give this a try because we need way more startup companies than we have around here to be able to survive and thrive in the fourth economy. So that's my encouragement. Well, I'd add one more thing to the list and that's tenacity. Like uh, uh, Winston <laughs> well, Churchill said, right. <laughs> never, never, never quit. <laughs> right, yeah, that's probably true. You, you have to be able to fight through the BS that you're gonna have to deal with to be able to stick the landing on the other side, probably true. John, you've been a breath of fresh air. Thank you for joining us on Green Sense. Love to have you back again. Wish you the most success at Next. and. Uh, got something newsworthy and some success stories, uh, let's get you back on the show, show to talk about it. Thanks, Robert. It was a total delight. My guest this week was John McDonald, Managing Entrepreneur at Next Studios, teaching us a new way to invest in communities. Visit thegreensenseshow.com website to learn more about sponsorship. I'm Robert Colangelo. Thank you for listening to Green Sense. Check out the Green Sense Minute every Thursday and Saturday on 105.9 FM, WBBM, Chicago. GreenSense Show is sponsored by CEA Technology, providing a sustainable modular indoor growing system. Visit ceatechn.com to learn more.